Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup, and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25, in natural mint. Here's to the winning combination for 2022, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB while supplies last. You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the LA Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Summer is almost over. That means we're two episodes away from starting a new season of All the Kings Men as we kick off the new hockey season. On Monday, we'll take a look back at the questions we asked at the beginning of the offseason. And then on Thursday, the first new episode of the new season, we'll be taking a look ahead at the rookie faceoff in San Jose. But today, today I wanted to take another look behind the scenes, this time with Zach Dooley and me a little bit. Before we start a new season, I wanted to take a minute and let you get to know Zach a little bit better and give you all a bit of an idea of what it is we do here and a little bit of how we do it. Joining me today... Zach Dooley, how are you doing today, Zach? Jesse, doing well. Center of attention today. That's right. It's just you just, and me. Just you and me. And room 254, which for our usual home. That's right. Snug confines. But not for long. Um, for those who don't know, and why would you? I haven't said anything about it on the podcast yet. We are uh, in the process. I just saw it today. I went and took a little tour of setting up a permanent studio in the office. Um, we've been using this office as a sort of makeshift when we could. COVID put an end to that. Um, but the reason I have you here today, Zach, and the reason I mentioned the studio is because I wanted to do behind the scenes with Zach Dooley and also do a bit of a state of the podcast um, as well as a bit of a history lesson um, of the podcast and the LA Kings Insider page. People may not know this, but the department that you and I occupy – uh, we are a, bra- a branch of the marketing department, but we are the content department. Um, you and Jack Jablonski and I are responsible for generating content, which is a word that I personally loathe, but <laughs> that's what it is. It's a great catch-all. Yeah, it is. Uh, but podcasts, articles, videos, etc. Not black and white. That's our production team, which is a, a different branch off of the marketing department. Um, so, but I wanted to get Behind the scenes with Zach Dooley, because you are uh, the engine behind the content department. So let's just start off with the simple stuff. Where did you grow up, Zach Dooley? I grew up in upstate New York, so about as far from here (laughs) as you could draw in the continental United States. Um, Born in a city called Troy, New York, um, home of the RPI engineers, home of former Kingsman podcast guest, Andrew Lord. That's right. For those of us trying to connect the dots. Yeah. Uh, grew up in Latham, New York, which no one has ever heard of. I certainly have never heard of it. No, there's no reason that you would have heard of it. Um, What's the population on Latham? Small. It's it's like a, it's not even a city. I'm going to Google it now. It's like a village or a hamlet. It's unincorporated super, county territory. Yeah. It's it? like a few down the list. It's very small. Uh, not much of note from Latham, New York. If you could ballpark it in a tens of thousands range. 
I mean, it can't be more than 10 or like uh, too much more than 10. Not much. It's 13, yeah, 760. Like, low, in 2020. Once you said tens of thousands, I could, right. it couldn't have been 20,000. So right. it had to be 10 plus. Yeah. yeah it's very small. Um, but we had a little bit of hockey growing up, uh, some minor league sports in upstate New York, but found my way out to Los Angeles. So what what was your sport of choice as a kid? Like when did you start falling in love with sports? Hockey and soccer I played. Um, I would attribute my dad as the reason that I fell in love with sports. He loves hockey. It's his favorite sport. Um, that was always my primary sport. I loved hockey. That was my favorite sport to play. Alternated between baseball and soccer. I didn't like the sitting around nature of baseball. Mm-hmm. I preferred the running around nature of soccer. So I those are the sports that I played through high school, I guess, and still play sometimes recreationally. I promise this will be relevant in a okay. second. But how tall are you? 6'2". Is that when – how old were you when you hit 6'2"? I was a late grower. Okay. I was like a mid-high school growth spurt. In, okay. in sixth grade, in the class photo, I was the second shortest boy <laughs> in my class. I sat in the front row. It was just like me and one other guy, and then it was all girls in the front. I was very short until like – Really, until like sophomore year of high school, I finally shot up a bit. I'm the opposite. I've been 5'10 since I was like in eighth grade. And they were probably like, this guy's going to play center for the Lakers. And then he. The just high school died. football coach at the high school that I went to, Long Beach Poly, which is a football factory, like begged me to play. And of course, I did not. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't have. I'd have given it was an I'd investment. They were like, ah, this guy, yeah, this guy's yeah. going to be pretty big. He's no. going to be an <laughs> asset for us. And. So are the Dooleys, like, are they the Dooleys of upstate New York? Was was your dad, was he also in upstate New York? Yeah. Like, how does he fall in love with hockey in upstate New York, in Latham, New York? Well, he's um, certainly a Rangers fan, Okay, um, as is the majority of New York State, especially upstate and the city area. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, he's, he likes to say that the only people who go to Islanders games are those who can't afford Rangers tickets. Or <laughs> No, not afford. He said they, that can't get Rangers tickets because sure. the Rangers sell out every night. Yeah. Um, which I think is a running joke amongst the Rangers fan base. But um, I don't know exactly. Like he played like on the ponds growing up, which you can do in upstate New York. That's what people did. Like hockey was certainly not the most popular sport, but a lot of people would skate outside and play with whatever they could scrounge up as sticks. Um, So he kind of fell in love with the game that way um, and certainly got me into it at a young age. And I've been playing since I was seven, maybe eight years old of mini mite hockey. What position? I was a forward. Wing, was, center? I was usually a center, okay. but very versatile player. You know, yeah. I, I could thrive in a lot of different roles. Um, but mostly, just, yeah, played center for the most part growing up. So, like, I went to games with my with <clears throat> my dad for years, yeah. at, you know, at the Forum and then at yeah. Sable Center. Never had a chance to play with him. Ice rinks, hard to come by. Not a lot of ponds in Southern California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what... Well, like, did you have, you know, the Rangers fine, but I'm assuming a bit of a drive from Latham. So did, yeah. was there a, a local minor league team? We had the Albany River Rats, mm-hmm. um, won the Calder Cup in like 1995, I think, which was like right before I got into it. But yeah, we went to the the Albany River Rats for years. Pretty good alumni list, if you look it up. A lot of players on those Devils teams that were very successful in the 2000s played in Albany before they got to New Jersey. Um, RPI, we went to RPI games and union games. We usually preferred RPI, but we would, we'd go to those games. My grandpa liked to go to the RPI hockey games. My, we would go to the, the river rats every, you know, a couple times a year. It was fun. They used to have a really cool minor league atmosphere. They used to draw kind of like what Ontario draws. And then it's 
heavily died off in the later years, but they were very popular at one time. Is my memory correct that they used to wear like a sort of a burgundy or dark? They had maroon? devil's jerseys. Oh, they did. Okay. Basically, devil's jerseys with a hockey playing rat on the front. <laughs> Here's a question for you. Yeah. Which LA Kings defenseman was on the Albany, not current, but played a lot of games for the Kings, was on the 1990 whatever Albany Calder Cup team? I feel like I should know this. Uh, so would, you said it was 94, 95? Yes, I believe. So like they, late they, 90s, early aughts And defenseman? he was a young, like a prospect right. on that Devils team eventually play a lot of games for the kings i'm trying to think of players that we would have acquired in a trade from new jersey uh it might have been another stop in between i can't sure oh man i'm gonna spend way too much time thinking about this i'm gonna say i have no idea yaroslav modry i was a young i was gonna say modry a young modes was on that team all right um so you mentioned rpi which is a school you did not go to RPI. I did not. Where no. did you go to school? Marist College. Where is that? Poughkeepsie, New York, okay. which is about halfway between Albany and New York City. All right. If you drew a line, it's like almost exactly in the middle. And what did you study? Because I am always fascinated. I went to Long Beach City College for a few years. Never, uh, not much came of that. But I'm always fascinated yeah. by what major people choose and how it manifests in their professional life. It's actually very relevant. It was sports communication. That what is sports communication? It's not a very widely like thought of program, but mm. Maris has a communication school. And then once you major in communications, you specialize in one of like eight things. And one of them was sports. Like this guy just built a program at Maris that was strictly centered around sports communication. So you learn like journalism, um, broadcasting, like radio and TV. Uh, you get the opportunity to write. You learn historical things. You learn how to act in certain situations. Um, so it was actually pretty cool. It was like Maris was the first college I visited and that was the, the college I wound up going to. And on the accepted students day that I went to after I sat in on like a little lecture on that program. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I said right there, that's where I want to go. And I did. And I never changed my major on like, I think everyone else, I just did what I wanted to do. That, I think that's rare though. Like I think it is. I have a bunch of friends who, you know, I, I have a friend who's a pilot for, I think, United Airlines. What do you even like? You can't just go to school and be like, hey, do, no. you, do you offer piloting? Like, And he didn't. He went yeah. to Santa Barbara, I think. Apologies, Nick, if I have this wrong. I'm pretty sure he went to Santa Barbara, got a bachelor's degree in whatever. Yeah. And then five or six years after he graduated, decided arbitrarily one day, like, no, nah, I want to be a pilot. Just kidding. And yeah. And yeah. then went to. You know, and then started an entirely different. And that's like such an track. extreme, right? Like you can 100%. do that. I went from communications yep. to business, very standard. I went from whatever I majored in to I'm going to be a pilot, right? And I had another friend, same story, went to Santa Cruz, and a lot of Santas out here. Yeah, and yeah. then a couple of years later, decided he was going to go into nursing. Went yeah. back to school, got a nursing degree. And yeah, now he's in there. Um, smart, right. smart business move by whoever that person is. By the way, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it really. What met his wife. Now they're both double did travel nursing for a while, lived in Hawaii for a while. It's great. Um, I couldn't handle it. But anyway, so I want to narrow down on one thing you mentioned about the school of the the sports communications. And that was taught you how to act in specific situations. Because if there's one thing I have learned in my brief uh, time in the world of professional sports, Mm -hmm. it's that there are a ton of different people with a ton of different backgrounds. And there are some like no cheering in the lock in the press box. Yeah. That was passed down to me as if it was, you know, 
written in stone, the gospel truth, but I'm not sure that that extends beyond crypto.com arena. Is that something that you were taught? Uh, hundred percent. Okay. Right. I, I say that's good. pretty widely. <laughs> right, good. I mean, there aren't signs right. up saying you can't do this, but it's pretty widely, I would say observed around the league. Like, not going to lie, when Adrian Kempe scored in game five of the playoffs, I think I punched Alec Palmer, our social manager, in the shoulder. Like, <laughs> right. You get excited, but you're not going to stand up and clap type thing. So mm-hmm. I, it's pretty widely, I would say, regarded. But, but I mean, the the notion of how to And act. I did learn that in college. Okay, actually. well, yeah. that's good. So that's what I want to kind of get into is, is the notion of, like, how to behave in a locker room, how to behave when you get a press pass, when you get a credential and mm. you are given access to people in their work environment. Like, yes, it's your work environment, mm. but it's also not just the athletes, but the locker room attendants, the PR staff, the security. Like, it's so many different people working yep. in this one space. It, I mean, and as you said, it's not written down anywhere, but but was there an attempt in this class to sort of <laughs> write it down and hand it and, you know. So I, I would say that it's less so in a class, but more so I had the opportunity to to do this. Like mm. they were student media. Like I covered the women's basketball team at Marist, who was awesome. They made the NCAA tournament just about every year, but went to each of the games, went to press conferences, went to practices and did interviews. So you trial by fire, right? Like you learn to do it. You watch other people who are paid professionals who are there to do the same thing as you, how they act, how other people act like. If I'm writing at the game and sitting on the little press row, you see what other people are doing. You observe. You see the kind of questions that they ask. You try to observe and ask intelligent questions. And you kind of just get thrown in, which was cool. Um, it was a smaller program at a smaller school. They're, they aren't overflowing with media in Poughkeepsie, New York. So we got the opportunity to do that kind of stuff. And I found that I always think that with anything, the best way to learn is by doing it. Like I am better at writing because I've write a lot and you're probably better at podcasting because you've done it a lot. So I found that you learn things in the classroom. Sure. But the opportunity to actually do this stuff was by far the best thing I did in college. I imagine there are tons of industries where this is true, where you're told this is how you should do things or this is how you ought to do things. Mm -hmm. And then six months on the ground, you realize quickly, Oh, that's one of the best, a hundred percent, right? Like yeah. you learn in the classroom and that's one thing, but you have to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, like you could read a million books on asking questions and still ask terrible questions. <laughs> yeah. I still remember we went to this. It was like a, it was like a sports communication, like Northeast seminar type thing. And there was this one presentation I sat in on, on, it was like 10 bullets to asking good questions. And it was super helpful because he would do one and he would ask someone like oh ask a question based on this and he'd be like no it's terrible and he would like (laughs) he's like the hardest thing to do in my opinion is to ask good questions that get good answers and that's just one element but you learn these things and then you get the chance to do them and you learn okay well when i ask something this way i get a terrible answer but maybe i ask it a different way and you get a better answer because you pick up on your experiences you screw it up but then you do it better the next time yeah, you got. I mean, this is what Todd McClellan said all last year, right? Make your mistakes, yeah, but learn from them, right? Don't repeat them. So, what was your first pro sports job then? I worked for the Utica Comets in the AHL. I was a communications assistant and a ticket sales account executive. This is coming straight out of college. Yeah, I graduated in three and a half years. So I graduated in like January and started working in like July or August in professional sports. Um, I made $10 an hour. My monthly expenses were greater than my monthly income, Oof. but except 
it was hourly. So that one time every six months where you got three checks a month covered the five, the five months before that I was slightly under. Mm-hmm. And that was my first job in pro sports. However, um, great people who worked there. Robert Esch, former goalie, is the president there. Um, went to bat for me to move on and had a good experience there overall. When uh, we can get into this later, but where is, did you meet your wife there? Where did you meet your wife? No, I met her in my second job, which okay. was in Adirondack, also in the AHL and then mm-hmm. in the ECHL. She's from upstate New York as well, but further upstate New York. <laughs> the hinterland. It of, keeps going. Of, of yeah. upstate New York. When you were making less than you were spending. Yeah. Did you know, like, had you were you already hooked on the job? Were you already like, all right, this is these are the lumps that I'm going to have to take to make this work? I mean, even when you in sports, you the staff make a lot less than people think. Mm -hmm. And it was still like it was more money than I was making at Dunkin Donuts before I got the job. But I just didn't have to pay rent when (laughs) I did that and lived at home. But, um, yeah, like it was still like I could make this work and I made it work. Um, you certainly know that in minor league sports, I knew I had to work my way up and I was okay with it. I had a supportive family, thankfully, who was there to help if needed. Um, but yeah, I wasn't necessarily too concerned with it. And, you know, thankfully I was only at that rate for a year before I was able to get a slightly higher paying job. I've had a number of people reach out to me over the years and ask some version. We'll get to this in a little bit later when we talk about fan questions, some version of the question of how do you get into it or how do you? Yeah. And one of the things I always have to say is like, I got into it because my life fell apart and I didn't have much else. Look at these behind the scenes, right? Like (laughs) my story is different from your story is different from Alex Faust story is different from Trevor Ribbon's story is different from Daryl Evans story, right? Like five people all in this Mm -hmm. company in the, and we can industry. throw in Carlin Bathe and Nick and Nixon. And we Jack could ask Blake. all of yeah. them too. And yeah. every one of their stories is going to be different, mm-hmm. which is the greatest thing about it, right? Like there is no answer to that question. I can yeah. tell you what I did to give you advice. I'm like, hey, here's what I think you should do. But like if you followed my advice, who knows? Like you got in a completely different way than me and that's cool. Yeah. But the the common thread I think in most of them is there's no – or not no. There's very little stability mm-hmm. unless you're coming at it from being a former NHL player and you have a – savings account to fall back on almost everybody else has a moment where they have to make the decision of like well is it worth risking Mm -hmm. my comfort yeah and that's a question that everyone's got to answer for themselves so you go from utica to adirondack yeah then how do you get from adirondack to ontario cameron close no (laughs) um but partially um so i was in adirondack for four years Mm -hmm. the first year we were ahl and then we were the reverse of bringing all the AHL teams to California. We lost our team, but gained the ECHL. So we went from the AHL to the ECHL, worked in the ECHL for three years. Um, Two of those were with Cam. Um, Mm -hmm. Cam moved out to Ontario. For those who don't know Cameron Close. Yeah. Used to work for the Former co-host of the AHL's greatest podcast. That's right. Not a rainy day podcast. Um, But Cam moved out 2017. I was in Adirondack during that season. And during that season, their communication slash content person left midseason. They pieced it together and he called. He was like, you got to get this job when it comes out. So, yeah, like I didn't I turned down on applying for certain AHL jobs because I didn't want to go to certain places in the AHL. Ontario was very high on the list, like one of the best run AHL franchises. And I would have told you that before I came here too. Mm-hmm. just the perception of Ontario is super high. Um, so when it came out, I applied for the job certainly had a 
some help. Like you don't get anywhere in sports without knowing someone or having a little bit of help because there were a lot of other people qualified. I was qualified, but a lot of other people were probably just as qualified. And I, I suppose I nailed the interview process well enough and got offered the job during the 2018 ECHL playoffs. We went to the conference finals. So I delayed my start date by about a month and a half to finish up the ECHL playoffs and then came out summer 2018. So one of the areas that you and I, I will say over the, in, in the, we have, we've had a three or four different versions of our professional relationship, sure. right? Because your job has changed and my mm-hmm. job has changed. And of course. Yeah. The company has changed, but, but in my mind, and I hope this is taken in the spirit with which it's given. Sure. It will be. <laughs> um, in my mind, you were always a trained in the world of PR and came at it from the perspective of um, that world, right? The the mm-hmm. You were always an employee of the club, wh- yep. whether the club was Utica or Adirondack mm-hmm. or Ontario or yep. now the LA Kings. Um, whereas m- my history was always in, you know, um, for – just to simplify it, the sort of fan perspective. Yeah. Um, and so you now occupy this weird job where you are creating content from a journalistic slash mm-hmm. entertainment, you know, w- w- from a space that is traditionally occupied by media, yep. journalism, entertainment, but you are very clearly, we're both very clearly team employees and your training and experience is more from the PR side, which is a completely different perspective. Is that, did I say that without offending? It's a long way to get there. <laughs> yeah. But I think you did. Um, like that is my background. Like I didn't even want to do the insider thing when I came out. That was just part of the job. Mm-hmm. Like the rain get very little external media coverage. Part of the role and the part of the person they wanted was a strong writer who could handle all the PR stuff. And this was as the team was transitioning to move out to El Segundo it was the first year the team was practicing here and not in Ontario. So they needed someone to be connected to the team that way, who could also provide day to day ish coverage because no one else was doing it for the HL club, especially when their day to day operations now weren't in Ontario. Um, so that was kind of, it's kind of like, I, I want to move up in PR. That was a great, opportunity and it also had this writing side which is kind of funny to say now because i now do the writing side almost exclusively um but yeah like my background certainly was pr because when you work in the echl you honestly don't even know that a job like this exists or like to be fair this job doesn't exist in abundance yeah exactly neither of ours do right like when you work in the echl you have maybe 10 to 15 people on staff total like you can't have anyone that's that specialized you have to do a lot of different things. So that was how I was brought up in the industry was doing a lot of different things. And then the opportunity to come out here and say, Oh wow. Like you can specialize in one thing very foreign, but was very cool as well. Do you have fantasies or, or plans or could you see a world in which the role that you currently occupy evolves or becomes more PR um, centric? Some teams do it that way. Mm-hmm. Like it wouldn't be the first time. Um, I think here it's it's great because I, for the most part, I wouldn't say that we're censored 
wouldn't say, I don't know if you would say that, but I, I agree a hundred percent. Maybe you get direction or things like you shouldn't, shouldn't do, but very rarely is anyone in any department saying like, you have to write this, this way, which is cool. Um, certainly could, you could see it. Like, like I said, like I know other organizations, the person who covers the team for the team, their other stuff is PR. It's not marketing content. Right. So those certain things are broken up that way. Um, but I don't know if it's how the Kings would break it up because there is such a diehard support for, you know, the LA Kings insider site, whether I'm running it or not, that I think it has to maybe be on that other side of the line right now um, for it to be as successful as it is. Let's just take a real quick moment um, because I there's so much stuff that I learn as as a fan that I wish I, or I should say things that I learn as an employee that I wish I understood as a fan and that I think would help fans. Said it a million times, like as you myself, like as you learn the business, you learn a lot of things that you're like, Oh, I used to, I used to get so mad about this as a fan, or I used to wonder why they don't just do this as a fan. Then you work in it. It's like, Oh, well obviously that's why they don't do that or do it this way. So let's place us on the team for super simplified. But, you know, I was talking to people on Twitter about this um, as I, trolled for um or fished for for fan questions loosely you know it's oversimplifying it but but the la kings are essentially split into two halves hockey operations and business operations yep. rob blake is the general manager and uh, you know in a dean lombardi was gm and president of hockey operations and luke robitai was president of business operations that that distinction no longer exists. It's now the LA Kings with Luke Robitaille as the president, but Rob Blake is the general manager and oversees hockey ops. That's scouting development, you know, contracts, all that stuff. Then in the business side, we have broadcast content, ticket sales, you know, Jersey design, all that stuff. And the two halves definitely communicate Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, interact when they need to. But, you and I are on the lat on like I said earlier, we're on the marketing ladder. Um, there's the you know we have a marketing division, and within that division, there's video production, graphic design, social media, and content, and that's where you and I um, find ourselves. What was your impression when you got into that spot of the role as it currently exists? Because as, as we've said, it doesn't really exist. Certainly not for every other team, although sure. more and more teams are doing it. Well, it was weird because I came into that role during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the team bubble that year. Um, so I never saw anyone that I worked with day to day. And during that COVID year, like I pretty much just wrote articles. Like I didn't have any other necessarily responsibilities. The bulk of my responsibilities were still helping out the Ontario team with behind the scenes PR stuff because they didn't hire anyone that year to replace me when I left. When you say PR stuff, like if like I did the game notes for the rain and I set up the website for the rain because they didn't have a PR person during that year. I was kind of doing both. Um, So it was a very weird introduction because I was like, man, like I, I kind of know who I'm working with. Um, Some people I had known from before, but I was the only one in the office. Like it it was super weird that year. Um, And then felt a little bit more normal this past season when other people were actually able to be around. Uh, But it was a very, very weird introduction. Just kind of being like, okay, okay, kid, go start writing. And then I just started writing. How much direct 
mentorship did you get from John Rosen and how much of your version of the LA Kings insider is just based on having that example set very publicly? I mean, a lot. I, I liked working with John. Um, so I was the rain insider when he was the Kings insider. Um, I think the biggest difference is when, when John had the site, it was LA Kings insider with John Rosen. And I think now it's, it's LA Kings insider. Zach Dooley is just someone who contributes to the site. And I, obviously I have the most contribution to the site, but they weren't really guest writers or anything like that before. But now, you know, we can, we can take a podcast you record with a great guest and we can turn that into a story or, you know, Jack Jablonski can contribute with a prospect feature or we can, we have, you know, different people um, and obviously Jared Schaffron with Ontario, but writing different things. Um, I learned a lot from John. Um, he ran the site his own way and I, I, took a lot of things that he did and tried to implement it into the stuff I did with Ontario. Um, and then, you know, now that I'm running the site for the Kings, I still, I think do a lot of things that were done before and maybe change some things that I think fit more of my style than John's. And it's just personal thing, right? Like don't force a square peg into a round hole is the cliche. Like if my strengths are a round piece, put it in this, put in the round hole. It's a weird, you know, I think we were talking, I don't remember which episode we were talking about it recently, but it's a weird role because you are asked to represent an organization that means a ton to a bunch of different people. And you're asked to represent it in a very straightforward way. But at the same time, you are writing these articles, which, as you well know, having written probably thousands of them at this point. It's you, like it's you, you know, no matter, even a press Mm -hmm. release is still written in your voice. You know, you can try and tailor your voice to fit a Mm -hmm. template as best as possible, but it's still your voice. Yeah, no, for sure. And in certain days, like the last thing you want to do is write, but you still have to write. Um, Yeah, I think it's definitely important to write the way that you do. And it's like, if you want to run a certain system as a team, but all of your players are better fit playing a different system. Are you going to continue to try to do the same thing? Or are you going to change your approach to best fit the personnel you have? Obviously a good coach is going to do the latter and that's how you, I think be successful. There was a gas station in the neighborhood I used to live in. And for whatever reason, I would find myself at that gas station late at night. I don't know why, but I just, it would be like 1130 or midnight whenever I would use so on to Four Loco and you went to the gas station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Four Loco. And uh, so I got to know the the person, the people that worked there. And one time they were asking me, you know, what I was doing or whatever. And I – it was during the – I can't remember what. But I, I had something to write or I was going to be up late working and they asked me what I did. And I tried to explain it to them. And they said, oh, so you're a writer. And I felt intensely uncomfortable saying, yes, I am a writer because obviously I'm not. <laughs> um, but – if you meet somebody or if, you know, a distant relative, you know, asks, oh, what is, you know, Zachary up to? Yeah. Like, do you identify as a writer? Yeah. I would say, like, I, I would say I cover the team. Okay. And then they would say, oh, what does that mean? I would say, oh, you know, like, I write, I, I go on the road, I write day-to-day articles. Um, I mostly focus on the writing. Like, that's the bulk of what I do. I found that it's, like... If you're trying to explain to someone that you're from Latham, New York, you don't just say, oh, I'm from Latham. Like, right. Like, no one knows where that is. So it's like, oh, I'm from upstate New York. It's like you generalize what you say. So I definitely generalize what I say that I do. But most people just think it's cool. Yeah, I work for the Kings. And then I vaguely explain mm. what I do. And that's good enough. But I mean, you have 
multiple responsibilities. Yeah. Is so I guess that's what I'm trying to drill down is like what's the primary one in yourself? You know, as as much as I hate the word podcaster. Yeah. You know, if I'm honest with myself, like that's what I am. I'm a podcaster. Mm-hmm. But then like in in reality, like your job is a lot more than just sure. hosting this podcast, right? Like Well, and your job is way more than just right. writing. I probably focus when I'm telling people, I always just lead with the writing. Mm-hmm. It's like the most because it's the most front facing. Mm-hmm. Like no one. It's a lot less interesting if I'd be like, oh, I edit other people's articles or like right. I format this website. If it's like, oh, no, I write articles about the kings. It's like, oh, yeah, like they can relate to that. I no follow up questions on that one. <laughs> no one seems yeah. to like no one cares about my job description that I meet and taught. Right. Like they mm-hmm. don't need uh, the full scope of duties. But I would say the most front facing is certainly the writing piece. And that's usually what I would tell people. But, you know, there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of website management, all this stuff that goes behind that, that might actually be just as important or more important than the articles themselves. Was there anything that you were most surprised by in your various travels throughout the world of professional hockey? Because you're one of the only people I know other than the players that have actually worked in all three leagues. Yeah. Um it blew my mind when I came out here to know how many more, how many people's jobs I was doing in the <laughs> ECHL. And like, yeah. obviously I was doing them at a lower level and a lesser scale, but like, I always would try to count. I was like, okay, if I look at my responsibilities in the ECHL, how many people do those things here? And it was always like 15 or 20. And it's like, geez, like that blew my mind is how in the AHL and the NHL, you have 20 people dressed. In ECHL, you have 18. But in the front office, you go from 10 or 12 in the ECHL to like 100 in the NHL, more if you count all these part-time staff. And that just blew my mind how disproportionate that side of it was compared to how it is you know, on the ice. We'll never have a full accounting of the total complexity of the financial world of professional sports. Yeah. But whenever the one conversation that I always laugh at the most when I see it, you know, popping up on fan boards or on social media is when people propose to understand the financial motivations behind any decision and they'll say, well, this is, you know, to save money or that's to make money or, you know, yeah. da, da, da. and I always go like, I, I, it's whatever it is that you think, whatever the math is that you think. And I don't yeah. say this looking down my nose at anybody. I was one of those people who thought, oh, this is, you know, it's simple mm-hmm. money in, money out. Yeah. These companies are so complex and the bottom lines and the motivations for what costs money and what makes money is. And that's a huge difference between yeah. the two leagues. Like in the ECHL, it it's like it's a business with a bottom line. And if you're in the red by too much with certain ownership, you can't afford to have the team. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the black, you're fine. Or if you're break even, like we went from owned by the Calgary Flames to local ownership. And it went from, I mean, the Calgary Flames don't care if they lose $500,000 on their whatever it's pocket change to an NHL team. But when you go to a local ownership group and you lose $1, they want to sell the team. Right. So it was like very, it was a lot more important to hit the budget there than I, like you said, couldn't begin to describe it here. But it's just a very big difference between like, this is someone with under to relatable money versus unrelatable money is the difference between the two leagues. The, the, I think the most perfect way to summarize all that is the uh, the acronym, the NHL. I didn't know this until a few years ago, but uh, but it's j- jokingly referred to as the Never Hungry League. Right. Because the amount of free food 
that's available at the games. Always available. Is insane. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go hungry if you try. Insane amount yeah. of food. Um, which when you're trying to lose weight, incidentally, yeah, not cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not cool at all. Yeah. Um, I remember Dave Joseph used to eat salads in front of me and I'd shake my head and go, what are you doing? And now I'm the one who's like, oh. People call the, salad. The, the ECHL is like, used to be the East Coast and then people call it the cheese toast because that's all you can afford to <laughs> eat when you work there. That's funny. Um. Want to dive into some listener questions, if you don't mind, and sure. this will give some more background on uh, on everything that we do. So uh, I wrote these down. I don't remember. I had a reason for writing them in this order. We're just going to jump into it. See if it still makes sense. Yeah. So the first one, uh, I don't have a specific question, but really glad you're doing this. There have been absolutely ton of hires between analytics and otherwise that we haven't heard much about, nor would we really without this episode or haven't gotten much fanfare. It's interesting to see how Blake's vision for the organizational side builds off of Dean Lombardi's. We obviously talk about the players part a lot, but not so much in the behind the scenes. There is a question that follows that up, but I'm just going to dive it into because I don't think I've seen people say, like, for example, you know, Solomon um, no longer with the team was known. And when he left, they hired three or four people um, to, you know, you said how many hats you were wearing, you know, down at the ECHL. That is the one – there are two departments that I don't know much about that I wish I could know more about. One is analytics and the other one is uh, – is um, I don't even know what department you'd put Vuki and, and Jake in, but – Capology? Yeah, Capology. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Those two departments, but I can say this. From what little we've seen from behind the curtain, they're very good at what they do and they work very hard. I think it's clear that the Kings invest in that side of it, like – it was always the online debate, like, oh, you don't even watch the games or like, right. like, but I think Mark Yannetti summed it up the best. He's like, when the, when the scouting side and the analytics side agree, you can be pretty confident that you're right. Yeah. They don't always agree, but like if they're, if the, the numbers that are crunched and the viewings spit out the same information and the same recommendations, you're, you can be pretty confident that like, this is the, the player we want or the decision we want to make. Um, it it's always like the man behind the curtain with analytics. Like you don't want to say what you're doing because then other teams will just steal it and replicate it. So I think Kings probably rightfully so are protective of that information. Um, Very protective. <laughs> but it's clear that they're using that side of the business to influence decisions. And that's, I would consider to be forward thinking. Yeah. Well, Yanetti told us, right. You want to be on the cutting edge right. um, of everything. Uh, so the follow-up question to all of that is, it does seem the Kings have been pretty supportive of new media. Is there a long game slash vision in play here? I'll just say from my perspective, the Kings have been incredibly supportive of new media. Um, I think I think the lack of what I would consider a long game or vision has less to do with an organizational blind spot and more to do with the notion that, you know, 10 years ago, well, maybe not 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this current world that we're living in was inconceivable mm-hmm. as far as new media and social media and the internet and all that. So to try and make a plan for five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, right? Like, well, how long has TikTok been around? A couple of years? Before Too that, long. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I mean, I can remember having a conversation with <clears throat> my dad a few years ago where he was telling me very confidently, sorry, dad, um, that Facebook was it. That was the pinnacle of social media. There would be no further evolutions. Because for that generation it is right yeah. like that's, but i try to tell your, him like yeah. myspace 
or Friendster never saw MySpace coming. <laughs> MySpace never saw Facebook coming, yeah. and Facebook won't see whatever's next. Now, yeah. as it turns out, it was Instagram. No, they did because they bought it. Well, fair, but to, <laughs> but you're right. You know, like that's that. Those are the platforms of right now. Those mm-hmm. might not be the platforms. Probably won't of five, ten years from now. Yeah, I think that the way it's kind of been explained is like the kings can't control if a local formal newspaper or TV station sends someone to the games, right? But they can control if they allow some guy who records a podcast called All the King's Men to have access to the team a little bit more or a local fan-operated website that covers the team. Like, they can choose whether or not to include those people. And if you do it the right way, you have more people with more access talking about your team to maybe supplement some of the lack of traditional media coverage that is out of your control. So I think it, it makes sense in the right context, right? Like you can't have anyone just be like, Oh, I have a website that has four followers. I'm in, I can do anything that, you know, uh, someone else can do, but done the right way. You find the right people who will carry themselves in those settings. And it makes sense, right? To try to replace what you don't have from other people. Which is a perfect lead into our next question. Nice. And I got a guest uh, answerer for this question. Is it you? No, it is not. It's, oh, Rich, okay. it's Rich Hammond. All right. The next question, I didn't feel comfortable giving the answer, although I think I know. I have my version of the answer, but I wanted the real answer. So for that, we have Rich Hammond here. Rich, the question goes, this is before your time, meaning my time, being officially connected to the team. But do you know how it came about? how the team felt in the process of slowly making LA Kings Insider an official part of the organization. I've been following LAKI since Rich Hammond, and it's been an interesting transition. So, Rich, I'm going to give you what what my you know idea okay. of what it was like back in 2007, and uh, you fill in the gaps where I, uh, where I leave them. Sure. So my understanding is that around 2007, the LA Times and the Daily News and the Long Beach Press-Telegram and all the local outlets stopped sending beat writers on the road to cover the LA Kings. And that at about that time, there was an explosion in what we'll call independent coverage of the L.A. Kings. Um, but that you started the L.A. Kings Insider page uh, on on the website of the newspaper that you worked for, which I believe was the Daily News. Correct. And that it became so popular and so well trafficked that in order to fill that gap in coverage, the L.A. Kings created the insider position and essentially just migrated you and your work from the daily news to the LA Kings. Yeah, that's that's the that's a good 30,000 foot view of it. You could probably just stop there. there. There's a lot more that went into it. You're right. Um that was around the time uh, a couple things happened there. Uh you know, blogs uh, I feel like a, you know, senior citizen talking about this, but <laughs> blogs were just starting to become popular at that point and uh we had a, established a very successful USC blog and and I had wanted to start a Kings blog just because I thought it would be fun. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what to do with it, but they said, "Sure, here's a page. Run with it." And and uh, by the grace of, of so many Kings fans, uh, I'm so grateful all these years later that uh, came to the site, came to enjoy it, came to encourage me to do more. Uh, it grew and grew and grew. And and that also, as you said, kind of coincided with the time when, unfortunately, newspapers were struggling and we were having a lot of cutbacks and you couldn't do the type of coverage that you really wanted to do anymore. So it was an outlet 
but but it was also a time when I was struggling a little bit because I thought, how much longer can I keep doing this? I just did, we didn't have the resources to continue to send me to practice all the time, to send me to road games, to even send me to some home games. Um, so it, it became a little bit of a question of how long are we going to be able to continue to do this? And if I can tell you a quick story, the way uh, the the genesis of it from my end, at least one day I was sitting in the office and. I saw Mark Cuban uh, wrote at that time, had his own blog, and uh, one day he wrote a blog item. To me, he was thinking out loud, and what he wrote in his blog item was, what would happen if I, Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, took $100,000? I don't know whether he gave a specific number, but that's for the sake of discussion, let's say $100,000, and gave it to the Dallas Morning News, gifted it to the Dallas Morning News, and said, you have to use that money. You earmark that money to cover the Dallas Mavericks. I'm not going to tell you how to cover the Dallas Mavericks. I'm not going to tell you who should cover the Dallas Mavericks, but you're going to use that money to cover my team because I think it's important to have coverage of my team. And I thought, that's, I've never heard of this before. I mean, 14 years I'd been in the industry. I'd never heard anybody come up with that idea. I took that link and I emailed it to Mike Altieri and Jeff Moeller, King's PR. Because there were people who I'd worked with for a while. I trusted them. I liked them. I wasn't fishing. I wasn't, I had nothing in mind. I, all I said to them was, What do you think about this? And they wrote back, and I don't remember what they said exactly, but the punchline was, Do you want to go have lunch? And I said, Sure. And, and that started what was about a six month conversation of what would that look like? How would that work? Would it still be independent? Would you still work for a newspaper? Would you work for the team? And we went back and forth uh, for, uh, like I said, for six months. Sometimes we went weeks, a couple months without talking about it. And then ultimately came to a place where we thought, you know what? I think this could actually work. We could actually do this. And then that was what you saw. And, and essentially, you're right, Jesse. I mean, we the goal was to to essentially migrate what we were doing at the Daily News over to the King's website, obviously with a lot more resources, obviously with the ability to do it full time, which I wasn't able to do at the newspaper. And I was grateful for the opportunity. I was grateful for the trust that they showed in me and uh, the time of my life. Just without getting into too many details, um, because people have asked me how many times, you know, or what kind of oversight I have. And I, I, I think the number I have in my head right now is the number of times that I've ever had direct um, editorial oversight into my work is like less than five. Right. Um, and we're going on I don't know, 10 years now or something like that, or eight years. Um, what was the direction? What What was the upshot of that, those conversations as far as how independent you were allowed to be? Yeah, I think that was the understanding very early on that it had to be. If if there wasn't that wall there, then people weren't going to believe it. If there were cracks in that wall, then you might as well just tear down the whole wall because it wasn't it wasn't going to work. And that took a lot of trust. And and to this day, I, I give so much credit to the Kings uh, for, from Mike and Jeff all the way up to, to Tim Laiwiki. I mean, who said from the beginning, uh, we understand, we understand. And, and there was trust involved. They had to trust me and I had to trust them. And, and if either of us violated that trust, it wasn't going to work. Um, so to answer your question directly, other than, other than one very high profile event in, in 2012, there really was not. I mean, it, I know people might not believe that. There were times when we discussed certain things. 
um, I, I had a weekly feature that ran on LAKings.com. So we would discuss, okay, what are you going to write this week? I would give them a heads up. We would uh, discuss what was coming. There were certain things uh, when Luke Robitaille went into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, I was invited to that ceremony as a member of the, the Kings uh, you know, media team, discussed what, how, what that coverage was going to look like. Never once was I sat down and said, okay, this is what we need you to write. This is what we want you to write. You can't write this. You need to write that. I, I speak. I have no reason to lie about it at this point. Uh, there was not one time in in those three years that 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 I was ever dictated to in terms of that stuff. So, you mentioned one time, and my understanding was always that that was the uh, the lockout related uh, incident, and that that was when your time as insider came to an end. Do you want to? Do you mind walking us through uh, what happened there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we went from the, you know, the, the ultimate high of, of covering a Stanley Cup championship. And then unfortunately, the lockout happened uh, just a few months later there. And, and I, I had every intention of, of continuing to, to do coverage, even though there weren't, uh, wasn't training camp going on, it wasn't games going on. So you have to get a little creative, um, as I'm sure you know, too, having been in this for, for quite a while. Um, so one idea that I had was to reach out to both sides. I was going to reach out to the NHL office and reach out to the NHL Players Association and just say, can I do a quick Q&A with you? Uh, can I just talk to you about some of the issues and what's happening, what might happen? Uh, with no bias, I didn't go in with any intention of favoring one side or the other. Uh, the league office got back to me and said, we're not doing interviews, which is something that they were very consistent about throughout the lockout. That was their policy. I didn't blame them for that. They, it wasn't about me. They, were, they just didn't do interviews. Uh, Kevin Westgarth, who I had messaged, wrote back and said, sure, I'll talk to you. Uh, Westy, always a, a, a media favorite because of his willingness to talk. So we had a nice little chat. Uh, I, I transcribed it, published it on the blog. And it was a couple days later that I heard back from the Kings that that uh, had not been met with, with favor <laughs> from the league office, uh, who did technically have a policy that said that we are not allowed to essentially promote players on on a, on a team website. That was the first that I had heard of that policy. Uh, had no intention of, of violating a policy. I didn't set out to do anything that was disruptive or anything like that. I was just, just, to, just to clarify, during the lockout. During the lockout, that's right. correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just content for me. And so at that point, it was I was informed that uh, they wanted me to to take down the blog item. And that made me very uncomfortable from the start, just because, as we discussed, I mean, that was something that uh, went against what I thought we were doing. Uh, and, and I didn't want to have to explain that to people. This is why we're doing it. This is why I'm, I'm violating what I told you that we were going to do and what we've done for three years consistently. Um, I wasn't trying to be difficult about it, but I also felt strongly about it. And uh, I appreciate to this day, still appreciate what the Kings tried to do. They tried to find a, a work through. We talked for several weeks about how we could do it, uh, you know, what what a compromise might be, things like that. Um, ultimately, it was my decision. I was not forced. Nobody pushed me. Nobody gave me an ultimatum. Nobody uh, made me, gave me a deadline, anything like that. I was very fortunate around that same time to have an offer to go work for the Orange County Register. Um, and I had actually declined that offer because I was happy with what I was doing. And I kind of went back and I said, yeah, you know what? Why don't we talk a little bit more about that? It was very difficult. I loved what I, do, I was doing. I intended to do it for a long time. I just felt like for my personal, uh, my personal belief system and, and for the belief in what we had built there, uh, that that was the best thing to do. So it, it wasn't something that I approached lightly. 
Uh, it wasn't something that I was overjoyed about, although I was grateful for my for no, my new opportunity. Um, but it was just something that I that I felt was was the right thing to do. I hope that the blog would live on, that the site would live on. Obviously, it has. It continued to thrive for for years and years. I take a great deal out of joy of joy uh, from that, um, and I still feel good about my my decision too. Excellent. Well, Rich, thanks again for the history lesson. We appreciate it. Okay, no problem. Couldn't have said it better myself, Rich. <laughs> um, because I, I, because I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, but I, I I do. I mean, it it was before my time, but it was at about the time that I started doing LA or uh, excuse me, the Hockeywood Insider with Matt Murray, which was the you know the uh, the beta version of All the King's Men, and Matt, much like Rich, worked for a local newspaper. The local newspaper stopped sending beat writers and credentialing, you know, became, you know, their coverage shrank. And Matt Murray started a blog much like Rich did, but it was at the LA, or Long Beach Press-Telegram, not the LA Daily News. The Hockeywood Insider podcast was able to have a credentialed media member attending games because Matt Murray was an employee of the Long Beach Press-Telegram. And that's how we got some of the stuff we got. You know, one of the, this is, references earlier Zach about how you know people always say they want to get into it but one of the things that that I have observed is it's very difficult in this industry to have a family um if you're trying to start out from shaky footing right like I don't have a wife I don't have kids so I have all this free time to devote to doing this you started at straight out of college mm-hmm. right so you have a professional you know you were building your profession but if somebody wanted at 30 say, or 35, and they already had kids, they already had a job, they had a mortgage, whatever it was, and they wanted to start over in this industry, the travel, the hours, the pay, it's daunting. Even if you got a golden opportunity to just do that, you still have to sacrifice somewhere else, right? Yeah. Like LA Kings Insider has coverage of the Kings on the road, which means you're not here for mm-hmm. you know a week, 10 days at a time when you're on a longer trip. So you're sacrificing that or... As you know, the NHL plays a lot on weekends. And when you worked in the minor leagues, they play every weekend. So you're giving up your weekends from September through April. And if you love it, as you and I do, it's you're not giving it up. It's just you'd rather be doing what you're doing. But maybe that's another side of like, oh, you don't see it till you work in it. But like you go to an AHL game on a Saturday because that's when you're free as a fan. Think about all the people who work every Saturday because their job is to work games and those happen on the weekends in the minor leagues and it's just like something you don't think about some people will occasionally ask me whatever happened to matt murray whatever happened to the royal half indiana matt jersey brian hsthb all these people that used to be involved in the show and i would always say like well matt had two kids royal half had two kids his career you know his real job came calling you know jersey brian had a kid indiana matt has two kids hsthb has two kids like Maybe you gotta have a kid here you're falling behind well i'm I'm not gonna. This, the <laughs> podcast is my kid. There we corny, go. Yeah. As corny as that may sound, but I mean, if it, if if I had pursued a quote unquote normal life, like that would have been the biggest stumbling block to this. Moving on. Um, uh, sorry about this. This one's for me. All right. <laughs> um, just kind of sort of answered it. Hey Jesse, what happened to get you involved with the organization? Did someone reach out to you when you were doing the podcast, or did you reach out to the Kings, or were you already involved before you started the podcast? So as we said in 2007. There were a bunch of different people starting to cover the Kings independently. Started the podcast with Matt Murray um, in 2011 or 12, middle of the 2011-2012 season. 
decided that uh, for a number of different reasons, some of them personal, some of them creative, um, decided that doing the podcast was no longer something that I wanted to do. Part of it was because the team was disappointing and it was starting to be a real bummer. Um, stopped doing it. A few months later, decided I couldn't not do it. It was something that I had to do. Reached out uh, to a bunch of different people. Wound up uh, doing it with the Royal Half at theroyalhalf.com. For those longtime listeners, that was a blog. We covered the LA Kings independently with a focus on humor rather than uh, analytics or, or uh, journalistic integrity. Uh, and then uh, to your point, Zach, earlier that you can't succeed without help or knowing people. Um, the Royal Half was invited to write game previews for LAKings.com, not for the insider. And uh, did so again with a tone towards humor and as our relationship our being the royal half.com because even though the royal half is a person there were about a dozen of us at any given point in time it's like your show right yeah well we always joked around that it was like a writer's room you know like we had a bunch of people contributing like something like bark madness as much as i know people hate it was a collaborative effort of everybody at the royal half like we it grew out of these conversations that we would have anyway because the Royal half had grown his relationship with the Kings. The Kings had tried to start a podcast with various different people, but because as we said, like you're about your writing, because it requires a personal voice and it can't, in my opinion, it can't be done, you know, in an official way um, because I was already doing it and had already done it. And we had an audience and we had a rapport and, and a method and, and could reliably produce content without having it be double checked by anybody. In 2014-15 season, they said, we'll make you the official podcast of the LA Kings. And, of course, I was thrilled. It was never something that I was planning on or thought that would happen. So that's how I got in. And then slowly over the years, the role has grown and grown. If only Blockbuster had the same foresight with Netflix. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, honestly, yeah. You don't have to invent it. Just buy the people who did. Yep. So next question is for you and for me, but we'll start with you. Um, who do you guys have that does the editing? I think this one was directed at me specifically, but... But I'll ask you about the writing because the answer is probably the same for both of us. Yep. <laughs> is like I edit my own work and mm -hmm. I edit anyone else's work who contributes to Insider. And I'm going to guess that you would say just about the same thing. Yep. And the follow up to that one was how often do you guys get to be at the crypt, which I do not approve of. I don't like nicknames for people, I like them even less for buildings. Um, to add any content to the pod or to the website, player coach perspective. So let's just talk about you. I know that you're at the practices. I know that you're at the games. You get to the games before I do and you leave after I do. So like how on a game day, let's just say, mm -hmm. what's your schedule? So usually the team will skate in El Segundo at mm -hmm. 1030. So I will try to be here, you know, between nine and 10 just to be ready. 1030 usually means 1015. So mm -hmm. if you're not here early, you miss things. Um, the team will have a media availability after skate, you can talk to players and coaches pretty briefly on a game day before the game. You get some notes and quotes for my game preview. Usually at home, I will then go home. I will write my game preview slash just add things in, try to get that posted, you know, one, two o'clock, eat lunch and shower. Uh, because we have a traffic problem here in Los Angeles, <laughs> I will leave my home, I don't know, maybe 3.30 on a game day, try to get to crypto.com arena by 4.30, which gives me about an hour and a half to two hours before warm-ups. 
um, try to get settled, eat. Um, then there's obviously the game, which we know is from 7.30 to 10. Post-game press conference is quotes and notes from players and coaches. Um, usually I'm out of here. If I can get out of here before midnight, I'm good, depending on how long everything takes. But transcribing, posting, editing, etc. usually 11.30 or so I can stay here till, and that's not too bad. This is one of those areas where I wish – Again, we'll never know the answer, but I wish we knew. I wish I wish anybody, fans included, could know the full economic breakdown of these things because in the in the golden days of newspapers, newspapers could afford massive staffs. Yeah. You'd have fact checkers, editors, copywriters, you know, f- format people, layout artists, all of this stuff. And all of that money was generated off of advertisements. Yeah. And they would have classified sections and people would purchase ads. There was an entire section that was just advertisements and yep. you would buy it. And people read it. Yeah. And then Craigslist came along and absolutely yeah. obliterated that industry because you don't need to purchase ads anymore. And so now, like, for example, us here in the content department of the marketing branch yep. of the LA Kings, like, we could theoretically staff our department with 15 people and not have enough people to do everything that the- yeah. that theoretically I'm using air quotes should be done. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we've got three people and yeah. we, we all have to be responsible for our own stuff. So you edit your stuff. I edit my stuff. Yeah. And over time you prove that you're trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, like there's not an editor, right? right? So like you either edit your own stuff or you post, stuff that's not good enough. So you just have to, it's like another skill that you kind of have to know how to do. And like when you were, when I worked in the ECHL, like there was no editor for my press releases. It was just, I would write it, edit it a lot, send it to say the person I worked for who wasn't going to sit there and edit it. It would just say, yep, sounds good. But if there was an error, it was on me. And I think it's the same thing here. Like you, if there's an error, it's on me. If there's an error in this recording, it's on you, but you edit it, you listen through to try to prevent that. And you could have more people, but we don't. So it is what it is. I, I, this is nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's just one of my personal favorite things to think about. The ways that the internet has changed. I mean, not that newspapers, you know, existed in their 1990s form for much more than 100, 150 years <laughs> prior to that. But the internet came along and changed the way everybody does everything. Like, when was the last time you wrote in cursive? Uh, I don't know. Fifth grade. Right. Yeah. N- not a long time. Right. I signed my name and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that like, I don't know if you had to learn it in school. You said fifth grade, but like yeah. my little sister didn't. It was a huge thing. Like yeah. you had to handwriting. I remember it was a grade on my report card. Like, right. And my handwriting was terrible because I'm left-handed and it was like a grade. Like, why am I getting graded on this? You think now, like if I have to, if I go to the doctor and I have to fill out the form by hand, I get upset. Like, right. why didn't why didn't I get this in advance to <laughs> right. fill it out on my computer? Yeah, or on your phone. Yeah, yeah. No, my, I have a little sister who just graduated high school, started at Wofford this fall, and I promise the terriers. You, yeah, yeah, man. I promise you, she has never written more than ten words, in, you know, consecutively in cursive. Yeah, totally unrelated. But it, when you got your driver's license, did you have to parallel park? I did, um, though I. Didn't 100% execute it properly, but still passed because he liked some of the other things I did, which were tips from the driving instructor. There you go. I got an unfair parallel park, though. I didn't get a curb. I just had like a like a yard. Mm-hmm. It was just grass to road. So like I think I hit the grass a little, but like 
not my just fault. Grass. It was just grass. Sure. Yeah. Well, neither of my little sisters had to parallel park. Really? I, I find to be an outrage, but again, another way the technology with the rear view cameras and all that. Anyway, I, I don't have a, I don't have a rear view camera. <laughs> yeah. Still, sometimes I'm I'm not good at it, but. So then uh, the next question I wrote down one version. We got multiple versions of it, and uh, I referenced it earlier. The question was, y'all got any job openings? <laughs> and uh, I think from what I overheard in a office conversation, I think we're actually finally technically all staffed up. I guess it depends. Like, there's always job openings. You know, right. there's part-time staff. There's, like you said, a million different departments here. I I don't believe there are any at this time in our specific department mm-hmm. um but if you actually want to work in the sports industry bookmark teamworkonline.com and refresh search all the time and you will find openings somewhere all the time and i will say this and you can amend this in any way you want the things that i would would stress if you want to work in this industry be on time yep for god's sakes be on time uh be Reliable is too simple a word. The thing that I learned the most about this industry is that if you can produce the thing that you said you would produce mm-hmm. without being checked on, without needing follow up, without and you can produce it completed, done. You know, you say you're going to do 100 podcast episodes and you deliver 100 podcast episodes and nobody ever needs to think about it again after telling you to do it. That's huge, even if it means mm-hmm. and, you know. For apologies for saying this out loud. But even if it means that you have to say that you know how to do things that maybe you don't know how to do and you'll yeah. learn on the job. But if you're creative and yeah. smart, you will figure out how to do those things. Like your podcast goes out on Mondays and Thursdays. So if you look and there's an episode on Mondays and Thursdays, you're probably going to be pretty good once you say something stupid. <laughs> and like I in season will cover the team every day with a minimum of one, usually several more articles each day. So if you go to the site and those articles are there, you've proven you can do it, right? At least at a base competent level. I think that's actually great advice that you gave right there. Yeah. And then the final one, and this one, this is the one that I struggled with the most. And fortunately, I was very fortunate that somebody did this thinking for me. And it sounds like you, I don't know, maybe you didn't have the benefit of this. The biggest stumbling block for me in any of this was the notion of why why should it be me why should my voice deserve amplification and fortunately like i said i didn't go through that struggle somebody came and said mm-hmm. your voice is you're already talking we choose your voice yeah i would never have if if there was an ad that said try out to be the official podcast of the la kings i wouldn't have filled it out mm-hmm. i'd have said no not me yeah somebody better than me um Get if you really want to work in sports, get over that. Yeah, like it should be you. I guess I, I've never thought of it like that. Like I just, I don't know. It's it's a great point, but I've never thought of it that way. Um, it's like I, I I view it as like I worked my way up the ladder rather than like the LA Kings selected me to be the written voice of the team. Even though in some ways that that might be true, but yeah, that's a it's a good way of looking at it. I never thought of it that way. It's, I mean, it's part of it is just I'm insecure and suffer from all sorts of neuroses, but, <laughs> but get over that if, if you want to work in this industry. This is what it is, right? Yeah. If, yeah. if, if you want to be a podcaster in this industry, yeah. you're going to have to be uh, but okay I mean, with any, your voice. But anything, heard. right? Like if you want to be uh, a ticket salesman or a coach mm-hmm. or, or if you don't even know what you are, like how many people work for this company where when we do our, you know, hi, my name is X and I work in this department and 
you know, something interesting about me. How many new employees have we heard? I just wanted to work in sports. Yeah. I mean, that, that was what I, my reason for getting in. Like I didn't want to be a ticket salesperson, but that's the easiest way by far to get into the industry is to do that because you're bringing in revenue for the company and it's the largest department. Um, I did that. I did okay at it, but I found a route to get to do more what I wanted to do, but I wouldn't have had that route had I not just gotten in. It's a very common answer for sure. Yeah. Um, this question, I have no idea if there's an answer, but I figured I'd throw it out and see if you knew. Cause okay. I feel like, I feel like the answer to this one might've been in one of our meetings that I may have zoned out. All right. We'll see if I was paying attention. Uh, will there be another undefeated collab this season? Um, I don't know the answer to it, but, right. um, if history is any precedent, I feel like those were super popular. So you'd like to think that there probably would be another one I've, down the road. I mean, I'm pretty sure our Zamboni at the practice facility. I'd be inclined to believe that yeah. there will be until I don't see it. Right. Yeah. Uh, next one's for me. Uh, do I stay in touch with Keith and Chris from King's cast? I don't personally, but Keith has a kid. I don't know yeah. about Chris, but again, kids, families, careers, yeah. they get in the way. Um, will we have more Cameron Gaunt's cause his breakdowns and the way he came across was amazing. You wrote that question, right? I did. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, but, um, yeah. Believe me, I will have as much Cameron Gantz as, uh, as I'm allowed. This one, I was really glad somebody asked because I occasionally see this brought up in various places and I definitely want to squash this 100%. Question is for both of us. Does everything you post, whether it's Twitter, Reddit, podcast, LAKI, have to go through a media relations person before you post it? No. Like... Same. I don't... The only person who has access... Not the only person, but no one really has access to the site even besides myself. So it kind of comes down to like what you said, like there is at least some level of trust with you can. It's a tremendous level of trust. Yeah. lot. Yeah. It's not even some. It's, it's a lot yeah, of trust. To it's like, a ton. No one besides me has to see my work before it goes out and could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've even gotten like a screenshot of something I've written and been like, what is this? Or does this, you know, like it's. I can't even think of one last year where that happened to me, at least. I'm, I'm happy to share my my very few instances of oversight. I don't know if you're comfortable sharing yours. Um, the first time anybody ever said anything to me about what I should or shouldn't say was I had a guest on who made a joke about Slava Voinov. And it was in the midst of the you know, legal issues before it had been resolved. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that was said to me was perhaps don't have that guest on again or explain to them very firmly that you can't, you can't make that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, fair enough. I didn't yeah. know he was going to do it. Yeah. Won't happen again. Um, there was one episode that I personally chose to scuttle because I was in a bad mood. They had a bad loss and I just, you know, went off in the press box for 55 minutes. And I think I went down the roster name by name and essentially said that they should all be put on rocket ships and fired into the sun. Um, Woke up the next day and said, maybe I'm not going to post that. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was one in the November of 2019, no, 2018, 19 season, season after they got swept by Vegas. And I was planning on doing an intermission segment on Bally or maybe it was Fox Sports West at the time. And the producer and I agreed on the segment and the segment was going to be uh, me calling for the team to tank the season in November. Um, it was my opinion at that point in the year that the season was done. They Which is, that was obviously the, the season where it went off the rails, yes. right? Yeah. And the word came down from upper management when the word got 
to them, you know, that that was the plan for that intermission segment. Ordinarily, I'm not aware of, I don't even know how, it wasn't like anybody called the red hotline. I, yeah. I think it just, I think it just casually came up in conversation and the decision was like, yeah, it's November. We still need yeah. to sell tickets. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> if you don't mind. Even if you didn't, like, it's November. I, I feel, I feel pretty confident in my analysis <laughs> from that November. But that, other than that, other than those two instances, I'm trying to think if there were others because I said five earlier. Um, there's that, there's that. I think that's really it in eight years of doing this or however long it is. And I mean, they trust us incredibly. Like we, the amount, the volume of content that you and I produce and Jack as well. And no, it doesn't have to be pre-approved and, and rarely if ever, is there any follow-up other than good job. That was great. The most editing I get is my wife sending me typos (laughs) in my story, which are bound to happen when you write. The only things I can think of on that front are like, you know, I think once when I was with the rain, I used information that was known behind the scenes, but maybe not how like I, I misinterpreted how it's supposed to be used. Mm-hmm. Got a screenshot. I was like, change this. And I changed it um, very rarely, though. Like, I, I really can't think of a single instance last year where got something like you wrote this. Don't do this again. Type. I, don't, I don't think that happened. I think most of the censorship that ever happens, honestly, and I'd be curious if this is true of you, it comes from me. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a good – it's different. You know, if you were doing this podcast or I was writing these articles and the team accounts weren't pushing it, mm-hmm. it would be a different story. But I look at it as like – not to say you can't be critical because you have and I have and we're not told we can't be. But like if the team is going to endorse this – do I want to rip the player in their cover photo in this article? Like you, you probably don't. So it's just being selective about what and when goes where, how you word it. And, you know, maybe which stories you're one way and which stories you're another way. And it's probably the same with your episodes where you can preface something like, Hey, this is a little bit different. And here's why. Yeah. And this, this seems like a good opportunity to point out that we have not taken any of the questions that people ask about players. You know, I've got a lot of questions about who's going to get traded, what's happening with Jersey and Anderson's we'll contract, et cetera. Yeah. Another episode. A, we'll get yeah. to that, but also I do want to sort of dive into the, that part of it right here. Cause I don't know. I don't, I'm not entirely sure your internal process on this, but for my taste, when it comes to like, you know, training camp, who's going to make the team out of training camp? And we will get to that. There yeah. will be episodes where we talk about yeah. that. My approach is we have no idea. It's all it's all speculation and I have no problem speculating and telling you, you know, what I think. But, you know, I am a fan. I'm a rabid fan. I'm a passionate lunatic fan. But I have opinions. Yeah. Right. Like, if you know, if I gave you a a list of 16 forward names for the L.A. Kings and I told you that 14 of them will be on the roster opening night and two of them will be presumably sent back to Ontario. I have an opinion on which 14 players those are, and I have an opinion on what should happen to those two guys that don't make the roster. And it's not necessarily going back to Ontario, but I also have to go talk to those 16 people (laughs) and if i'm wrong (laughs) um it's difficult i mean and that's not a that is not an organizational censorship issue and it's not even necessarily a personal censor censorship issue it is it's just an unfortunate reality that you have to maintain 
personal relationships in a professional setting. If your opinion is that this player is not good enough to be on the team, and your opinion is the organization should just trade him or cut him outright. Yeah. You know, you can you don't have to put him on your projected roster, but you don't have to go all the way in on the guy either when, like you said, maybe he does make the team and then you are in that setting. So it's certainly a fine line. It's not official censorship from an organization, but it's just lessons that I sort of yeah, watched and learned. It. And so, for example, Keith and Chris, who used to do King's Cast, they had a segment called See Ya. I think that's what it was called, where they would identify players or things that they thought should go. Mm-hmm. And I, this might not be true, but it was a story that was told to me, and I took it as truth and use it as a guideline. They did an episode where I think it was uh, – I forget. I, honestly, I don't remember the name of the defenseman at this moment in time. But they identified a player on the roster and said then he was their Sia that week. And it was like, this guy's a bum. Sia. He needs to be gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. And I was told that for whatever reason, that guy happened to arbitrarily discover their podcast one day. I have heard this story, yeah. And and <laughs> contacted the front office and said, why on earth you know, am I being bad-mouthed by uh, our own yeah, people? Because yeah. at the time, King's Cast was the official um and that's not fan podcast. I think. And it's not the only time that's happened. Yeah. And it's been family members. Yep. Or, you know, teammates or like that stuff does happen. Yep. More regularly than you might think it does if you don't know that it happened. Yeah, exactly. And and it's, you know, it's in a perfect world. Nobody has, you know, hurt feelings over anything and everybody gets yeah. along and doesn't matter. But we do not live in a perfect world. Um, and I see this a lot too. Like for example, when people, we don't need to get too deep into this one, but, uh, but when people list like the worst trades, a lot of times the Darcy Kemper trade will get brought up and I constantly fight this fight. And I say, even, even the point of, of referencing that is to say even upper management, even, you know, PR staff, front office staff, general managers, coaches, all of these people have to work with other people in the industry. You know, it's really easy for fans to say, well, player X makes this amount of money and produces this amount of points and player Y makes that amount of money mm-hmm. and produces that amount of points. So it's very simple. You know, Bill Belichick's the only one who's gotten away so far with ruthlessly cutting everybody yeah. exactly when he wants to. And it hasn't worked so great since Tom Brady left. It's like, so. well, I can I can structure it one way in my video game. Right. And I can just make this juggernaut. So why can't they do it in real life? Yeah. Right. It, but I'm ra- I'm rambling, but yeah. that that is again part of the reason I think that you and I are both um, careful with what we say, how we say it, and when we say it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and it doesn't come from up high. Um, last question, last serious question. Okay. I don't have any idea of the answer, but I suspect you might. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with our content. But how does okay. AHL scheduling work? Um, so starts with teams and buildings agreeing to dates you know buildings have concerts they have multiple tenants you i actually used to do the schedule in the echl and i was involved in the ahl is you submit say 60 dates and you submit them with priority so you might have five must-haves 10 or 15 grade a's 10 or 15 grade b's and 20 grade c's and the league takes that input from 30 whatever teams and they create like a matrix, like a large scheduling matrix that has 68, 72 games for each team. From there, 
They send those schedules back to the teams. The teams can look at it. They can ask for changes. They can make requests. Maybe a building doesn't have a date available that they did. So then they put more revisions in. I don't know if it's the case in the AHL, but in the ECHL, you could like trade games. Like we had a Tuesday that we didn't want. You could trade it for three Tuesdays down the road. You might switch opponents. You might switch days. You can just make changes as long as like both teams in the league agree on it. Um, and then from there, it just becomes a becomes a schedule. I don't know though the how it goes from thirty teams submitting sixty dates each to the actual schedule. I've heard it's by hand. I've yeah. heard there is now I think like accounts and like programs that do it. But yeah, it goes to that, and there are obviously a lot of changes from the first draft you receive to the actual final schedule that you see on the paper. All right, now this question is not. Uh, serious, but I'm going to give a serious answer. And uh, this one was directed specifically at me. I'm going to give you an ans- an opportunity to answer it, although I don't think you'll have as clear an answer. Okay. Question for me was, what is the closest that I ever came to selling a kidney? Okay. I'm not going to th- explain how, when, or why. Well, I still will say when. I was never close to selling a kidney. Okay. But the closest that I ever would have been to selling a kidney would have been in early 2007. Okay. And I can definitively pinpoint that period in time. Do you have a similar? <laughs> I can't say that that has ever crossed my mind. Um, I guess, fortunately. It had never crossed my mind before I yeah. saw this question either, but that was, that was it. That was um, the darkest, that was the darkest point in my life. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I can't say I have an answer to that. So. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, very lucky me, yeah. for sure. Um, and I will say this. I didn't sell my kidney. I started the, I started doing a podcast with Matt Murray. There you that go. Was, and then so here the we are, two kidneys still intact. Yeah. The next question is for you, but I think I will again have a better <laughs> take than me. Okay. question was, who is your favorite Teletubby? I couldn't name um, – I don't know, the green one? I, I don't know. I don't have a... And I'm going to guess you have a thought-out answer to this question. I don't. I did watch them because my little sister was of the, it was the like, proper age when they were I popular. was just at like five years too old right. to watch it as a kid, I think. So I never really never really watched it. The eldest of my two little sisters, who if, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but they're 19 and 27 years younger than me. Yeah. So I was watching them as kids a lot uh the older one i don't remember how old she was when teletubbies were very popular but old enough that i wound up watching my fair yeah. share of teletubbies tinky tinky winky poe lala and i forget the other one yeah um, they're terrible teletubbies i've heard of terrible tinky winky and poe yeah sound terrible yeah terrible program i was so happy when i she was gra- more in the barney era than the teletubbies oh, also era. that was that was my youth like it's probably about you know what five years yeah. apart like that was my youth when she was old enough to watch spongebob I was on board for that. Yeah. I watched a ton of SpongeBob. I think my parents would say the same thing. It was like, this is tolerable. Yeah. I could could still throw SpongeBob on and watch it. Caillou, Teletubbies, uh, Arthur. Not Arthur. Was it Arthur? Arthur was the, yeah, the anteater. Yeah, yeah, Arthur. Yeah, I was thinking of Doug for a second. Doug, great show. Yeah. Yeah. But but all the stuff for very small children with not a lot is the worst. Yeah. I think that's I think that's going to wrap it, Zach. But before we wrap it, I do want to talk about stuff we have coming up for the new season because I am very excited. Yeah, um, me too. We've got the studio, mm-hmm. which is going to be great. Yep. It's going to be so great. I live around the corner now, so... A couple El Segundo guys with yep. an El Segundo studio. And we've got a lot of plans for the podcast. Yep. Um, 
it'll be undergoing is changes the right word i don't know if changes is the right word but i think we're going to try some things yeah that's a better way of led saying by it. Yeah, led yeah. by you um i think we come up with some ideas that could work and we'll mm-hmm. try them and if you like it and the people listening like it we can keep doing them and if they don't we can pivot because like you said we aren't told what to do on the show and i've you and i have had a bunch of meetings and conversations over the last few weeks about you know the new season which incidentally for for the podcast purposes the new season starts on uh september 15th 15th okay the next episode that you hear not this one but the next episode that comes out will be our 10 questions off season wrap up that'll be the last episode of season we're currently in then we start the new season on september 15th looking forward but i discovered you know i've got all these little notes and things that i jot down i can't tell you how many of the ideas that you and i have been talking about i've i've you know a couple days later gone like oh yeah i've been (laughs) thinking i've had this idea in like i've been trying to come do some version of this idea for years so um super excited um appreciate all the listeners all the readers um I don't know anything else that uh, that I feel like that you feel like I missed or uh, you wanted to bring up. No, I think that's a good it's a good catch all, and we'll we'll answer all of the questions that you received that you yes. didn't ask probably in the next a lot of them probably in the next episode, others probably in the episodes to come um, yeah. as you kind of get closer to training camp and eventually the season. Actually, I do want to throw in one question that has been directed to me over the last couple of days, and I'm just going to sneak this in at the end. Because okay. I, I, it's a, a thing that I like to reference that I yell at podcasts. Yeah. And people have been asking me, like, what are you, like, who is it? Who is it? I just want to say definitively right now, it's not King's Realm. It used to be. I used to yell at them all the time. It's no longer King's Realm. Uh, and I'll just say this, coming back to the issue of self-censorship. I prefer to identify when I know what I'm talking about, when I don't know what I'm talking about. And when I don't know what I'm talking about, I try to avoid making definitive statements. It's probably a good, uh, that's good process. That's usually what I'm yelling at is when people are making definitive statements about stuff that they either couldn't possibly know the answer to, or they have, you know, or they don't, the answer is available and they are saying the wrong answer. Well, you're the only podcast that I listen to related to the LA <laughs> Kings. It. So I don't know who you're talking about, but yeah. it sounds like a good life lesson. Yeah, exactly. That, you know what? It is. If you don't know, say you don't know. There's that, no, that, no shame that's in not fine. knowing stuff. Or cite someone yeah. who does know. Yeah. And that's fine. All right. On that happy note, we're going to wrap up. Zach Dooley, thanks as always. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Kingsense. We'll talk to you very soon. 